Hey everyone, this is Cabane. Today what we're going to be talking about is the idea of scripture and tradition. And specifically, we are going to be talking about the way in which tradition is authoritative as a divine witness by the power of the Holy Spirit to the identity and truth of the Eternal Son as he discloses himself in scripture. Specifically, we are going to be looking at the idea of an authoritative tradition through the lens of biblical categories, which I don't think have been employed to the extent that they ought to be employed in this discussion. And even more specifically, we are going to be looking at this idea in the Johannine literature, specifically in the Gospel of John and the Apocalypse of John, which I believe are the last books composed with his epistles in the New Testament. I believe they are written as a canonical conclusion, not only to the New Testament, but to the entire Bible. And I believe that one of John's major themes throughout his writing is going to be the completion of this canonical library. So we will get into that as the video goes forward and the relevance of that to the question of tradition. Before getting into that, I want to say a couple words about patronage. Uh, I have just uploaded a 35-minute discussion of the first chapter of C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, so all patrons have that available to them. Uh, you have access to exclusive content uh, at all three levels, but at premium and elite, levels two and three that is, you have access to all premium content. And at the top level, which on Patreon is $20 and over, you're guaranteed at least an hour of a one-on-one -on -one discussion um, to talk about issues which you might be having trouble with or you think I might be able to offer you some help. So uh, I want to keep as much of this content available to the general audience as I can. And if you are not a patron, if you enjoy this content on a regular basis uh, and you are in a financially good situation, I actually take into account that um, I really do want to paywall as little content as possible. I could probably get more patrons by paywalling existing content, but I really, really don't want to do that. So please do consider uh, becoming a patron, but I appreciate everybody who watches, who subscribes, who participates in this YouTube community. So let's start with a prayer. Illumine our hearts, O Master, who lovest mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of thy gospel teachings, and plant also in us the fear of thy blessed commandments, that trampling down our carnal desires, we may enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as are well-pleasing unto thee. For thou art the illumination of our souls and bodies, O Christ our God. Unto thee do we ascribe glory, together with thy Father, who is everlasting, thine only good and life-creating spirit, both now and ever, to the ages of ages. Amen. Under the Old Covenant, the responsibility of teaching the Word of God, especially during periods of transformative change, fell to the prophets. Elijah, Elisha, and Isaiah, for example, founded what are called schools of the prophets, where they would teach the true reading of the scriptures, the Torah and the prophets. And in fact, this institution is referred to in the era of the prophet Samuel himself. It seems to be some kind of pre-existing institution wherein people uh, who were committed to the God of Israel and his Torah could study that Torah in a context animated by the power of the Holy Spirit, at least when these institutions were functioning correctly. Under the Old Covenant, it was only prophets 
who received the indwelling of the Spirit. And prophet is a broader category, I should say, than the specific ministering prophets, and it's a much broader category than the specific writing prophets, of whom there were very few. But we see a hint of this larger phenomenon when Saul receives the Spirit, when he goes to the high place in his anointing to become king. And there are a whole number of pious Israelites who are having an ecstatic experience with Israel's God on this holy hill. And the word prophet thus denotes a broader category than what we're used to thinking. The word prophet denotes one who has the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And in many cases, that indwelling was unto a particular vocation with respect to the covenant people as a whole. But we see this uh, broader vocation being spoken of, I think, in uh, Anna, in the New Testament, prophetess Anna, who prays and fasts at the Holy Temple, awaiting for the coming of the Messiah. Um, but it was only prophets who would receive the indwelling of the spirits, and that only until their death, at which point they would descend into Sheol, the grave in the bosom of Abraham, and they would wait for the coming of the Messiah. Because death is precisely the inversion of divine life, it was not ontologically possible, given the wiring of the cosmos and given the wiring of human nature, that this indwelling of the spirit would persist after the tearing apart of soul and body. So God maintained them in existence by a free act of grace in view of the time when God himself would enter into death and thus allow those who have reposed to appropriate divine life and ascend into God's heavenly court. But under the new covenant, the whole people of God is given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Joel 2, when it prophesies the day of Pentecost, saying that your young men shall see visions and dream dreams, is quoting Moses' description of a prophet in Numbers chapter 11. You can see these on the screen here. And immediately after Moses says this, he says, Would that all the Lord's people be prophets. The gift of the Spirit at Pentecost fulfills not only the word of Joel, but it fulfills the prayer of Moses, where, this, uh, where according to Joel, the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. Given that a true interpretation of Scripture was taught and transmitted by the prophets under the Old Covenant, this seems to indicate a special role for the whole body of the church in the New Covenant. Now, in case you're interested in pursuing that other point further, you just look throughout the book of Kings and you see that the remnant of Israel, particularly in the northern kingdom, is formed out of the active ministries of the prophets Elijah and Elisha. Jesus says the one who is born of the Spirit blows where he wishes. And then again and again, we find that Elijah and Elisha are moving from place to place. They can't be caught by those who are seeking to persecute them. And in fact, Elijah blows up into heaven on a chariot of fire, and we know not where he dwells. In many ways, these prophetic ministries moving from place to place anticipates with the greatest precision the character of Jesus' ministry. 
I was thinking of making a video today about the Gospels as ancient biographies because I've come to think that they are not ancient biographies, that if we want to speak about genre at all, it's not a particularly useful concept, but if we wanted to speak about it, the closest analogy to the narrative style of the Gospels, especially uh, uh, Luke and John, uh, would be these extended narratives of the careers of the prophet Elijah and Elijah. But the fact that the prophets are entrusted with the interpretation of scripture under divine inspiration, they transmit this interpretation ultimately to Ezra, who teaches the people as they come back into Jerusalem in song and dance associated with the Spirit, as they come back into Jerusalem carrying the wind of heaven or after a fashion the Spirit of heaven on their back with them so that they sanctify the walls of the city as if it were a temple. Uh, the fact that the prophets have this vocation seems to indicate that the entirety of the people of God animated and indwelt by the Holy Spirit will have some role in perpetuating an authentic understanding of who God is as he is revealed in his written word. So John's gospel explores the special role that the gift of the Holy Spirit will play in transfiguring the Old Covenant into the New Covenant. With Jesus teaching repeatedly on the Spirit and his miraculous life-giving and teaching work. According to John 1, the Eternal Son dwells at the side or in the bosom of the Father. And when Jesus is teaching on the Spirit later in the Gospel, we see the beloved disciple at the side or in the bosom of Jesus. In fact, these are the only two instances in which the word is used in the New Testament. And the presence of the beloved disciple at the table of the Last Supper in this context recalls what Jesus says about us dwelling in the Son through partaking of his body and blood in John chapter 6. But the beloved disciple is not merely a self-referential figure. The significance of his dwelling in the side of Jesus as the Son dwells in the side of the Father lies in his being a paradigm or symbol in the sense that the reality is attached to that which symbolizes the reality. A symbol of the whole Christian people, as the whole people of God are beloved in this sense. As the Gospel of John says, that having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. In the beginning was the word, and then he loved them to the end. The message is that through the incarnation and work of Jesus the Messiah, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, we will all dwell in the side of the Son as the Son dwells in the side of the Father. I've described all of this to make apparent the significance of Jesus' words, which I've presented on screen here in John chapter 16, beginning in verse 12. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot hear the, you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth, remember Jesus is the truth, we are to worship God in spirit and in truth. So when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me. This is Jesus speaking. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the father has in his mind Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. St. John has a special focus on the significance 
of the new covenant in contrast to the old a theme with which he begins in the prologue the law came through moses grace and truth came through jesus the messiah the gift of the spirit to the whole church is one of the most important distinctions possessed by the new covenant in contrast to the old it's something which is prophesied and anticipated in texts like Deuteronomy 31-6, which speaks about the circumcision of the heart, Jeremiah 31-31-34, which speaks about the engraving of the Torah on the heart of God's children, and Ezekiel 36 and following, which speaks of the Spirit of God living in the children of Israel and bringing their bones up from the grave so that they, in their regathering, will live. Jesus Christ is the eternal truth, and as the truth, hypostatically, he makes known everything that is true about God, and everything that is true about God contains in himself the possibility of anything which is true about anything else. As the hypostatic truth, he is a witness to the truth of God, and particularly the true interpretation of Scripture. A theme to which the Lord will return again and again in John. If you believed Moses, says Jesus, you would believe me, for Moses wrote of me. In this context, it is very important that the Holy Spirit is said to be the spirit of truth who will take what is mine, that is, the truth, and declare it to you. The book of Acts begins by noting that Luke's gospel, the ministry of Jesus, was a record of what Jesus began to do and teach. By implication, the history of the church is nothing other than the ongoing ministry of the Lord Jesus through the Spirit, a ministry which began with the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. And in fact, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. That's a term which is used throughout the Hebrew Bible for kindling the altar. And we see in Revelation chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, a figure whom I believe is Jesus doing precisely this, taking fire from the altar of God in the heavenly Jerusalem, casting it on the earth, which is followed then by a succession of phenomena which echo God's descent on Mount Sinai. So the descent on Mount Sinai to give the Torah, that is commemorated in the Old Testament Feast of Pentecost, and the Spirit writes the Torah on the hearts of the people. Thus, the New Testament Feast of Pentecost is about the inner Torah and the indwelling of the Spirit to make the presence of Christ manifest in us. So I want to show that this understanding of tradition as that memory of the character of Jesus, that remembered attestation of exactly who he is and what he says about God through the work of the Spirit in the church, that's what tradition is, I want to show that that is present in the Johannine literature, not just in a couple isolated passages, but something which is one of these threads which is woven through the text as a whole when you meditate on it. In order to show this, it's important to set out John's understanding of the theology of the biblical canon and the completion of that canon as it is reflected in Revelation 10 and John chapter 15. So in my view, one of the literary themes of John and Revelation is the completion of the Bible. Under the Old Covenant, after a scriptural text was completed, its author would deposit an official copy of that text in the Ark of the Covenant. 
So just as the Ark of the Covenant was the archetype, the paradigm for the life of the nation as a whole, which is why impurities in the nation would create impurities in the tabernacle and in the Ark of the Covenant, so also do I think the paradigmatic texts, the patterns for the preservation of the originally penned prophetic word were stored in the Ark of the Covenant. And this is not something I'm making up. This is something which was spoken of in a Jewish tradition of the Second Temple period and afterwards, something which uh, St. John of Damascus mentions in exact exposition of the Orthodox faith. Uh, this is something which St. Philaret of Moscow mentions just a couple centuries ago in his Catechism of the Orthodox Catholic and Eastern Church. Uh, but this deposition of these texts in the Ark of the Covenant thus setting them apart as canonical from the beginning, helps explain why this tripartite biblical canon of the Torah, the prophets, and the writings is in evidence so early. I think there's a very um, a powerful piece of evidence for this in Sirach. I think Sirach mentions this tripartite structure. I think Jesus does in the Gospel of Luke. Josephus certainly mentions the Hebrew uh, biblical canon. And John of Damascus uh, echoes and ratifies this understanding of the canon. For those who are wondering, St. Philaret actually has a discussion of this in his uh, Catechism of the Orthodox Catholic Faith, but the books which Catholics often call the Deuterocanonicals, the majority position in the Eastern Church uh, has tended to be that they are worthy of reading for edification. We study them, uh, they were used to train catechumens in basic Christian virtue, but they do not have the same position that the 22 or 24 books of the Hebrew canon, depending on how you count the books. Some, sometimes two books or even 12 books is counted as one, which is why 22 books, 24 books, 39 books, it's actually all the same canon. It's just in different orders and different books counted together. Uh, but that canon, I, I, I think, is normative and canonical in the strict sense of the word and that's not something that i've made up it's something which is uh, there in the tradition both uh, in antiquity and throughout uh, modernity um, modernity of course meaning chronologically not ideologically <clears throat> despite uh, various theories about the alleged gradual development of the biblical canon uh, such theories have no evidence whatsoever the Jewish tradition is that Ezra finalized the canon of scripture, and this tradition seems to be quite well-grounded. As Stephen Dempster and John Salehammer have shown, the traditional Hebrew canon is ordered in such a way as to accentuate literary links and compositional seams between major collections of the book. So Deuteronomy 34, the end of the Torah, is linked up with the end of the prophets. Uh, the beginning of the prophets in the book of Joshua, well, that's linked up uh, with an intertext at the beginning of the writings, which is the Psalms, which is why Jesus speaks of the law of the prophets and the Psalms. As the head book of the writings, the Psalms signified that whole collection. The books uh, have these links following each other, and they have links among these three major divisions, that is Torah, Prophets, Writings. And the literary links are not randomly distributed. They're not just little gemstones, which we are supposed to take delight in for purely aesthetic purposes, but rather they focus the reader's attention 
to the major themes in canonical scripture. And they focus the reader's attention to the reality that scripture is a canon, that we are dealing with a single work written by a single divine author with a single perfectly carried out purpose. And that purpose is the revelation and bringing forth of the messianic king who is from the line of Judah, who is from the line of David, who would bring out about the new exodus, both from death and from uh, the uh, curses of the Sinai covenant uh, and the new sanctuary. That is, he would bring the presence of God into the world in a new and unprecedented way. Was the church is the new temple of God, or rather the church is the fulfillment of everything that the temple anticipated and prepared for. In the new covenant, the scriptures are deposited by the apostles in the body of the church. Canonical consciousness deeply rooted in this Jewish mindset is quite evident among Christian writers from the very beginning. As Michael Kruger, I think, points out correctly, there never was a period where there was no such concept as the canon of the New Testament. The apostles themselves quote other New Testament books as scripture. Paul quotes the Gospel of Luke as scripture. Peter quotes the epistles, or Peter refers to the epistles of Paul as scripture. I think Paul in Ephesians is uh, echoing and commenting on the first letter of Peter. I think each of the four Gospels links to the preceding Gospel and is meant to have a position in the overarching structure of the New Testament. I have a video on the order of books in the New Testament and the potential significance thematically that this order has. But we see this canonical consciousness um, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, which I've placed right here. Uh, St. Paul states that anyone who does not hold his writings to be the command of God should be put out from the assembly. That is, they should be excommunicated. The norm of Eucharistic communion, the norm of the in-out distinction is whether they accept the apostolic authority of Paul as it is specifically enacted in his uh, epistles. That Paul commands his epistles to be read liturgically also underscores this major point because it is in the liturgy that these books are made manifest as being scriptural and as being the completion of the Tanakh. Because the Tanakh is manifest as the Tanakh, as the Book of the Covenant, in its being placed in the Ark of the Covenant, and then when the Ark of the Covenant was gone, simply in the Temple. Well, the way in which the New Testament is placed in the New Temple of God is by its centrality in the liturgical usage of the Church. This is why the seizure of uh, scriptures was conjoined with the demand that Christians offer sacrifice to the pagan deities. The gospel book is placed right next to the Eucharist at, on the altar of our unbloody offering. It has a unique significance. And the understanding that these writings were uniquely authoritative and thus uniquely worthy of being studied is evident uh, very early uh, in non-canonical Christian literature. In Ignatius's writings, we find echo after echo of the books of the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament alike. 
This is totally contrary to the conventional view, which is that the New Testament canon is, develops as a response to Marcion, who rejected the God of the Old Testament and only accepted some of Paul's epistles and an edited version of the Gospel of Luke. The conventional idea among academics is that the canon of Marcion is in reality what gave the church the notion of canon. Whereas I think the much more reasonable interpretation of the evidence is that Marcion is acting violently against a pre-existing canon of scriptural literature. So the canon of scripture is a tradition that is given to the church by the apostles in the most concrete sense of that word, tradition. It is that which is handed on to the church. The word tradition comes from the Latin word trado, tradere, which means to hand on. Well, the apostles handed these specific texts to their successors as the norm of Christian belief and practice. Tradition being, as I will argue, the normative exposition of scripture. Controversies about specific books of the New Testament in most cases actually develop later, not in the earliest period of Christian history. This is most true with respect to the book of Revelation, where the earliest evidence indicates widespread, indeed ubiquitous, reception of the book of Revelation as scripture. And we do, by the way, read the book of Revelation um, once liturgically. So it's kind of like passed around uh, that you know, we don't read Revelation liturgically, and sometimes people try to derive a significance from that, but um, Revelation is part of the Bible. Um, <laughs> uh, but these controversies about specific books uh, seem to come after, in many cases, an initial period of universal acceptance. Uh, and the second point here is that these controversies seem to be relatively local. Uh, these 27 books that make up our current New Testament, and only these 27 books, are the books which were accepted by the majority of the Christian world as scripture. So those books which some people describe as on the edge, well, those were doubted by a minority of churches. And by the same token, those books which were kind of on the edge trying to edge in, you know, some of the non-canonical literature like Hermes, First Clement, which some people wanted to receive into the New Testament, uh, well, those were only accepted by a minority of the churches. These 27 books, and only these 27 books, as far as the evidence uh, leads us, are the books that were accepted by a majority of the churches. So the completion of the scriptural revelation is part of the emphasis on the uniqueness and glory of the new covenant. So John begins his gospel by speaking of the unique and definitive revelation that has come through the incarnation of the word. St. Paul says in Hebrews, in various times, God spoke by the prophets, but now he has spoken to us by his son through whom he created the world. In Christ, the word of God God has spoken everything that it was possible to say. And the completion of the Bible is a covenantal or sacramental manifestation of this. Just as the Bible itself begins its production at the cutting of the Mosaic Covenant at Sinai. So we see 
the notion of memory, which is a major theme at the Last Supper, where our programmatic texts from John are coming from, do this as my memorial, this is the way in which the presence of Jesus is perpetuated through time, the notion of memory is closely associated with the idea of writing down the works of God, because writing has an enduring character that sustains the oral transmission of this memory. When you have something written down, it allows you to exist in a continuing uh, relationship of renewal with this written text. And in Exodus 17, we see that after God makes known his supremacy over Amalek, God promises to blot Amalek out forever, and we are told that a book was produced as a memorial. This book, which is produced as a memorial, has this character as an enduring sign because it contains, in language, and Jesus is the Logos, God remembers all things in the Son, he knows all things in the Son, he speaks all things in the Son, these are all aspects of his being the Logos of God. Because it is written in language, it is a objective realization of the content of God's acts in history that the human being can return to and refresh his memory. So Paul says throughout his epistles, refresh my heart in the Messiah. And the heart is often spoken of as the uh, locus or the focal point of memory. So the Bible really begins at a distinct and identifiable point in time. And it's my argument here that the scriptures end in their production at a distinct and identifiable point in time. So at the supper, when Jesus sets the table for the new covenant and his enduring presence, he speaks these words, no longer do I call you servants or slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Now I want you to note the connection that this phrase has with what we quoted earlier from John, which I believe actually comes after this passage. What the Spirit hears from Jesus, he declares to us. So there's this Trinitarian dynamic, which we are brought into through this kind of language, this uh, dialogue, this, this, or we could call it a trialogue. I want to make a couple bonus points on a brief tangent before we get back to the main point. First of all, it's interesting that the character of Jesus is embodied in this language of knowing what the master is doing. That is, it is the activities of the son by which he is made known to us. Now, this might seem to be kind of pedantic or trivial. I mean, what basis do I have for thinking that the activities here have anything to do with, conceptually speaking, with the Palamite teaching? Well, we can talk about that some other time, but I want you to just think about how the concept of light 
the idea of glory, the concept of immortality and resurrection, the concept of the world to come, are all bound up in John's Gospel with the notion of work or acts. Because this is not the only place in John that activities play a central role. Consider in uh, John chapter 5, what is it that leads to the accusation of blasphemy? Jesus says of his father, my father is always working and I also must work. It is the works of God which are shared between father and son and which thereby imply that they are, using later terminology, consubstantial with one another because a work and activity is predicated of a nature or an essence. So same activities, same essence that's a claim to divinity. Obviously, they didn't reason in precisely those words, but it would be my argument if I had the time to make it right now that that is the basic chain of thought that is going on both in the gospel and in the Palamite controversy. Uh, servant does not know what his master is doing. I have called you friends. All that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Remember, I've said that what's going on here is this is the table by which Jesus will be an enduring presence in the lives of his people. So to summarize why I say that, Jesus throughout his ministry, especially in the synoptics, will tell stories of a man who has gone away from his people for a long time, but is coming back to judge. Now, the primary application of that for his audience this describes a pattern of divine activity in general so it has many applications which are tied together with each other but when israel heard these words the message was the god of israel left his house his temple and he's coming back and when he comes back he's going to judge it's malachi uh, chapter uh, four comes with the burning oven that's haggai he fills the house with glory and uh, purifies the priesthood, which means removing that which is impure. Uh, Zechariah, we see the flying scroll runs into the uh, temple and it cleans out everything which is making it unclean. Much of Jesus's language in the temple cleansing is taken from uh, these prophetic texts and things in their immediate uh, context. But what makes Jesus's telling of this story so scandalous in the eyes of his audience, as N.T. Wright points out, is that Jesus is telling this story in order to explain why he is riding to Jerusalem in the way that he is. In other words, Jesus himself is the embodiment of the God of Israel riding on his chariot to come back to his people and to dwell in the temple. You did not know the day of your visitation, Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke. So we have this idea of God returning to dwell in the temple. He is returning to Zion to reign as king. It's Isaiah 52, 7 and following, which leads into Isaiah 53. He's coming to reign as the messianic king uh, at Zion. Well, he comes in, he goes to the temple, he flips over the tables in the temple, and then, in the literary immediate context, he sets a new table, and that new table is the table on which he places the elements of the Eucharist. And so the enduring personal presence of God in a liturgical context, in his glory, is through that which is set at the Eucharistic table. And as we pointed out at the previous slide, 
we have on this very altar, on this table, the Eucharistic elements and the Gospel book. Surely this has some theological significance. It's not just a random coincidence. For a little while, get back to the main point, David writes, man was lower than the angels, Psalm 8. Uh, ultimately, though, he would be crowned with glory and honor. And as St. Paul says, he will judge angels. That is, he will sit in authority in relation to angels. Christ does not merely save humankind from sin, though he does do that. He also glorifies the human race, developing the creation beyond what it was prior to the fall. We have a whole series of videos on this. God created man as a spiritual infant. He was naked, as a child is naked. In the end, however, in the book of Revelation, man wears robes of glory, robes which are the righteous deeds or acts of the saints. That the righteous acts of the saints are robes of divine light tells us that the saints are righteous by their acting with the act, with the work of the Holy Spirit. The life of God becomes their own. Jesus' words here are part of this overarching narrative arc, part of this transition from angelic tutelage to human dominion. In Galatians, Paul describes the Old Covenant as a time of tutelage, a childhood. When we were children, he says, it was managed by the angels. I've placed this passage up here. Uh, and this host of angels was led by the pre-incarnate Logos. And the name of his office was Angel of the Lord. Through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, the apostle tells us, we have been adopted as sons and we have been made heirs of the creation to rule it in righteousness. To speak of friends in this biblical context is to speak of a counselor on the royal court. The friend of the king is the man who has the ear of the king. He sits on his council and he provides him with wisdom on managing and governing his kingdom. Just look at Jesus's inner circle. Jesus has an inner circle of Peter, James, and John, just as David will have an inter David has an inner circle of three friends. Job, likewise, is the king of Edom, and he has an inner circle of three quote-unquote friends. And that gives us important context for the book, because what's going on in Job is these three counselors are essentially attempting to foment a revolution, a coup by blaming him for the catastrophe which has befallen his house, thereby preparing the throne for their own family. That's why Job reacts uh, so sharply against them. Many, many of his harshest words are directed not to God, but to he, uh, these treasonous uh, men. Revelation shows the departure of the archangels, the 24 elders. Uh, we meet them first time in Revelation 4 to 5. They're just called elders, matching the 24 high or chief priests under the high priest. And if one counts the number of angels that act and walk off stage throughout the rest of the book, you will find that there are 24 angels. But these 24 angels are headed by a figure called another 
angel. These 24 creaturely angels cast their crowns before the throne of God in Revelation 4 to 5. And these crowns are picked up by glorified human beings in Revelation 20, especially those who have reposed in the Lord. See Revelation chapter 14 says, Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. Their deeds follow them. Rest is frequently, in fact, I think it's, it's nearly always associated with some idea of sabbatical enthronement. Uh, what does it mean to rest? Well, to rest in the book of Joshua is to uh, enjoy the fruits of the conquest. That is, you have acquired dominion, sovereignty over the land. In the book of Esther, Ahasuerus sits on his throne and rests thereupon with a glass of wine in his hand because he has completed his conquest. This, I think, is, is James Jordan's fascinating suggestion, linking um, Ahasuerus of Esther, not to Xerxes, but to uh, Darius the Great. Total, total tangent there. You can ignore that I said that. Um, but the second death that we read about in Revelation is the bodily resurrection of the wicked. That is, the wicked in their damnation are described as enduring a second death. Now, if you just take the logic of that phrase and you invert it, well, so also the first resurrection is the bodily death of the righteous. That's what's going on in Revelation 20, verse 4. I saw thrones and Seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Obviously, I think this is a symbolic period of time, as is essentially everything else in the book of Revelation. And as happens so often in these two books, the first resurrection exegetes what Jesus means by those who live and believe in me will never die. Those who live and believe in me will never die because their death is actually itself a resurrection. And Jesus says also, uh, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. Well, Jesus has ascended into the heavenly court. He has prepared this place and he has taken the saints who have reposed in him to rule and reign with him during that time until heaven and earth are stitched together in the world to come. But this all is the context for the words of Jesus in John 15 at the beginning of this slide. He has told us everything, giving us the wisdom to sit on the throne of God's kingdom. John, by setting these words in the overall context of his gospel and its theology of the Old and New Covenants, points to their significance as being fulfilled in the completion of Scripture. Remember, St. John is writing the last books of the canon in the production of the gospel, the three epistles, and the apocalypse. Uh, this sheds light on why the warning to neither add nor subtract from the words or the prophecy of this book is placed at the end of of the book of Revelation. As we've talked about before, it's a little too convenient that this would be placed at the actual end of the canonical Bible if there really was no referent other than simply the book of Revelation. 
The phrase words of the prophecy of this book recalls what has happened in the immediate context where the other prophets who contributed to the prediction of the mystery of Christ are spoken of as your brothers, the prophets. And the words of the prophecy of this book have a contextual reference to the whole prophetic word, the whole prophetic mystery as it is disclosed in Christ. We'll talk about this in uh, the next much shorter video in this discussion. So a similar warning had been placed in the final book of the Pentateuch, it's Deuteronomy, and now this warning is placed at the end of the Bible as a whole, referring principally, or immediately rather, to the book of Revelation, but to the whole Bible in a genuine, real, and intentional sense. Uh, note also that the end of Revelation echoes in ways that are very, very clear. The very first chapters of Genesis. You have the city of God, which needs neither sun nor moon because the Lord God is its light. Well, Genesis begins with let there be light, which is taken up in Exodus 14 in a recapitulation of the creation week, where it is the glory cloud of God, which is shining at the Red Sea. So this uncreated light, which was the primordial light of the world, at least in my interpretation and you don't have to agree with me there, but that, that's what I think makes most sense. Uh, that primordial light uh, suffuses all things when the firmament uh, is removed. Noah builds a miniature representation of the world. He puts a covering over it. At the end of the flood, he removes the covering. And more importantly, we're told that he removed the covering, which means it must have some significance. The word for covering is the same word which is used and uh, to refer to the Ark of the Covenant, or the, rather the mercy seat, uh, later in the Pentateuch. So there's a lot you can do with this. So note this point, that John 15, which is speaking by implication of the completion of the written word of God, and John is just full of, of double meanings like this. This is not something which I'm suggesting for the first time. This is just the way that he writes. Uh, it's in this very context uh, that the Lord speaks his word about the spirit leading the children of God into all truth. That is the gift of the new covenant, the gift of the spirit in its revelatory aspect is uh, number one, scripture, unified and completed as a single book by one divine author, as it is reflected in the literary correspondence between Genesis 1 to 3 and Revelation 20 to 22, as it's also reflected, I think, in the fact that Revelation alludes to every book of the Old Testament and probably every book of the New Testament. I have accounted for almost every book of the New Testament being echoed in Revelation in a way that um, couldn't just be explained by generic New Testament language. This scripture is completed in its signifying the incarnation of Jesus Christ as he in whom God has declared everything that can be declared of himself. Then the Holy Spirit is given to the church in whom this heavenly book has just been deposited. And this Holy Spirit will declare its interpretation to the church. This Holy Spirit is the one who exegetes who calls to mind in the life of the church 
that which Jesus had disclosed to the apostles, which is what Jesus says. The Spirit will remind you of these things. And let's not forget, Jesus is using all of this language about memory in the immediate context of instituting the Holy Eucharist, where he says, do this as my memorial, or in memory of me, or as my memory. You can render it in uh, a variety of different complementary ways. The Spirit thus manifests the Word, the Word becomes incarnate, and the Spirit joins man to that incarnation. Likewise, the Logos becomes textualized in Scripture, and the Holy Spirit declares its interpretation to the people of God. So, that's all for today. We are at 50 minutes, which I think is plenty. And in fact, that is pretty much the whole thesis. Uh, this is kind of an exploratory thing. This is not um, at the level of the perspicuity of the Trinity or something, but I think it's an interesting path to go down, and I think it's a, a useful way, if nothing else, to look at these concepts using language that we are not used to using. So what we're going to do in the next part, which is already written, in both the slideshow and the script is pre-written for this one, the next part, we'll just look at Revelation chapter 10 and the way in which everything that we've looked at here today uh, also holds true in Revelation 10 and is underscored in some ways we didn't get into today.